The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. It is common for people to perceive themselves according to their present realities. A person in ill health says, I am ill. Few say, I am well, it is my body that is suffering. People in a low income bracket say, I am poor. Only the unusual person will say, though outwardly I live in poverty, inwardly I am wealthy. Thus, when it comes to moral and spiritual development, people commonly identify themselves with their weaknesses and their mistakes. They consider it almost a sign of humility to say, I am a sinner. Though, in effect, what this means is that they identify themselves with their so sinfulness and not with the soul's power to transcend all limitations in God. The great masters, including Jesus Christ, have always emphasized the divine potential of mankind. To encourage us, they address us as children of light, not of darkness. The Bible in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 3, makes the point that our true, <coughs> that our true home is not the mud of this earth, but the light of heaven. No man hath ascended up to, uh, up to heaven, said Jesus, but him that came down from heaven. The passage continues, Even so the Son of Man who is in heaven, emphasizing that Jesus, though he lived on earth, is perceived by the eye of wisdom as conscious, even in human form, of his true reality in heavenly spheres. The way to know God is to live in godly consciousness and not to bewail our imperfection and our distance from God. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the Bhagavad Gita states, Seekers of union with the Lord find him dwelling in their own hearts. But those who, lacking in wisdom, seek him with impure motives, cannot perceive him, however much they struggle to do so. If you want to know God, Paramahansa Yogananda said, live in the thought that you have him already. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. The teaching here, as is so often, if not always the case with spiritual teachings, is multi-layered, multifaceted, and uh, this is the problem that anybody who tries to share spiritual truths with others finds himself in, that you say one thing, it's sort of like this, this uh, Jewish mother who is offering her son a choice of two cakes. So he said, well, I'll take this one. She said, don't you like the other one? <laughs> it's a problem. You say one thing, and it looks as if you're rejecting the other. And that's not the case at all. Well, let's go back to something I've been saying in recent times and said it here. And that is the extraordinary length of time that we 
live in this world before we finally reach the level of freedom where we realize that we are from the light, we are children of the light. We must always affirm that, and we must remember that it is a memory, that it's a question of, uh, as Patanjali said, that when ecstasy comes, his definition of ecstasy was smriti, memory. And yet, and yet, we've hung around a long time out of that light, out of heaven, out of all the things that were really made, basically made up of. And if it had been one or two lives, well, it wouldn't be that bad. But when you realize that it's been possibly, quite possibly, billions of lives. Because although it takes five to eight million lives for the soul to come up to the human level, and that seems like a long time, the trouble with the human level is that it's got intelligence, it's got discrimination, <laughs> and it can misuse its intelligence, be totally undiscriminating, and get into so many tangles. Master one time said, people are so skillful in their ignorance. <laughs> and we have had a huge backlog, or we might say that every incarnation piles a little bit more mud on the gold of our soul darkens a little bit more with a sort of a heavenly rheostat, the light of our souls. And when we uh, try to relax into what we think of as ourselves, we tend altogether too often to relax into that which is not ourself. This is why the idea of psychologists that you want to be relaxed, sure, if you, can, if you want to be peaceful, you've got to be relaxed. Well, how to be relaxed? Well, just sort of let down your hair and do what you feel like doing and be yourself. Right, except that self is not the light that we know. The self that we know that comes most naturally to the surface is mud, germs, mental germs, all sorts of wrong habits and wrong memories and confusion. And how do we get out of that? Well. It's beautiful and lovely to say I'm a child of the light because it's the truth. But we have to understand that if we try to live in what is more at the service of our memory, we're going to be living in lots of things that have nothing to do with our soul memory. It'll be the memory of the ego. Now, here is the real dilemma that we live in. And I myself am trying to talk about one thing find I have automatically to have to say that, uh, because if I said both, people would be stuck in the middle and wouldn't know what I was talking about. And yet I have to talk about both. So I've, I've emphasized, as an example, the importance of creating an ashram rather than a community as such, because Babaji sent Master to the West to create an ashram to bring Kriya Yoga, and when he wanted communities, he didn't want just a community, he wanted a place where people could seek God. And as far as it goes, this is a truth and worth stating. But it's not the whole truth. And I don't want you to think that suddenly I want you all to just sort of close your doors and wall up the, uh, everything and sort of sit there and chant Om. We have to realize that living in this world, we have to constantly try to balance and to create a beautiful community as a community, but for God, that's the real secret. Not to say, well, then community is delusion, 
Art is delusion. Creativity is delusion. Everything we can do is delusion. I don't want to have any part of it. And I've emphasized that, um, partly to sort of emphasize the importance of getting out of ego uh, motivation in what we do. But don't think that Master was against all these things. If you understand the truth, both sides are right. You just have to understand them in the right perspective. And whereas I emphasize, perhaps too much, the idea that I, I am not creative, I do it because you jolly well know I am. <laughs> and I want to emphasize the other side too. But I must say, I would find life very boring if I didn't try to make it better. I, my whole life has been that. You've got to therefore understand when somebody says something, who's saying it? Because it's, uh, uh, I don't believe in not being creative. I just believe in being creative for God and trying more and more to let God do it rather than me do it. Not do it because I want to do it, because I feel he would like this. This is in tune with him. This would express him. And I have to tell you the truth that when I've written so many things that I've written, music, books, often it's been with tears flowing down my cheeks. So you can't say it doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me. Of course it means a great deal to me, but it's for God. And if there weren't God there, it would be ugly. Everything is ugly without God. So that's why I've encouraged Lori to bring this thing into dance. I mean, can you imagine me with two false hips and <laughs> trying somehow to lumber through a dance? Oh, we've got Lori who does it beautifully, and I just had have been, have been waiting for years for someone to come who could express these teachings in dance. And the same thing with our choirs. It's so wonderful to have them sing, and sing beautifully. And I don't at all mean that, that well, it's all delusion, so what does it matter? So I'll just croak away like uh, all these frogs out here. <laughs> we have to do it with our whole hearts. And there's much more joy doing it for God than there is when you do it just for yourself. I've seen so many so-called creative people, and they are creative, but there's such a sense of self-importance that they exude, it's almost a stench. <laughs> the beauty of doing something as an offering for God, the beauty of doing it feeling that I'm only channeling you and I'm offering it to you as my devotional a uh, gift of love, um, which is the way Laurie was dancing. It was beautiful. And fortunately, cho she chose a chant that, I mean, a poem that I also have greatly loved all my life. So we need to keep a balance there. We want to create very good schools, not just schools where people sit chanting Ma Gayatri Mantra, but schools where the children know how to live in the world, but to live in the right way learn how to bring principles, moral and spiritual principles, into whatever they do, and not to say, well, it's all delusion and I won't do anything. No, I uh, am probably the last of Master's disciples to say, don't, don't act. The Bhagavad Gita says it too. It says, although uh, we know that the goal of it is to get out of delusion, nonetheless it says, no one ever achieved me who uh, tried to do so by inactivity. You can't not act. Even if you sit there and you're acting, you're breathing, that's action. You're thinking, that's action. 
You can't get away from action. So the answer is act in the right way. And acting in the right way doesn't mean creating great monuments. It means that everything that you do, you do it with the thought of God. Now we have this situation in the world. God, in order to manifest the world, had to create motion. And I, I uh, have mentioned here the sheer joy that I get when I find a perfect example. It really says it. I always wondered, how do you explain that motion, vibration, creates maya and vice versa? How do you do it? Suddenly I realized, well, you get a propeller moving and those individual blades suddenly seem like one solid mass. Where there's movement, there's delusion. Where there's delusion, there's vibration or movement. And when you take the tines of a tuning fork and move them back and forth, if they move fast enough, you, it looks like a solid thing. When they slow down, you see it was just one, two tines moving, that's all. So this world of delusion is that because it's in motion. But you can't just suddenly say, all right, I won't move. And another thought is that in this motion, it is a motion in opposite directions from a point of rest in the center. With that uh, rest in the center, you have God. But as soon as God moves one way, he has to compensate for it by movement in the other way. If it weren't for both movements, you wouldn't have anything. It wouldn't be possible. You can't have one movement without its opposite. You can't have creation without duality. Impossible. The reason that, that uh, uh, whereas you, you see the blades of a propeller and you see it looks a little bit solid, the reason you have so much variety and so much seeming reality is that you've got so many trillions of movements. It's not just these two, but it's this one and this one and all sorts of other movements in between. And so with all of that, this chair feels solid, your body seems solid, my voice seems real, all these things seem a part of a reality that, that uh, we know, at least to some extent. And yet it is a delusion. It is all of movement in the cosmic consciousness, manifesting duality. And wherever in this duality you have movement in one direction, it would not exist were there not an opposite. There is an old... Uh, whether it's true or not, you just never know, and I certainly am not going to experiment with it. But uh, they say that uh, in the tail of a cobra, there is an anti-venom. So if you get bitten by a cobra and bite down on the tail, <laughs> then, and the American Indians used to say that uh, wherever there is a poisonous plant, right growing very close to it, there will be a healing plant that will counteract that. Again, I don't know if it's true. I know it's true that they've said it or that somebody told me that they've said it. But we don't know some of these things as facts necessarily, but we do know that they express true principles and I'm using them to illustrate that principle, that everything that you do has its countering part. Now, suffering is offset by joy, love by hatred, peace by excitement and nervousness, heat by cold, light by darkness. This whole world is made of those opposites and of movement between the two. And that movement is a part of our lives. So that you can know for an actual fact that if you really 
enjoy anything emotionally, you're going to have an equal and opposite sadness. It just happens, it's the law of life. Does that mean, therefore, you should go around with a blank face? No. It means that this outward reaction will have a similar and opposite reaction. But joy in yourself is something that doesn't have an opposite. The closer you come to your own center, the less you have movement. And the less you have of movement, the less you'll have of an oppositional state. So the joy that you have in meditation it does not mean that because you had a good meditation you're going to suffer tomorrow. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. But as long as you had an emotional reaction to that good meditation, you will have an emotional pain. Yes, that's the truth. Because it's in reaction that opposites come. And if you can manage somehow with a lot of practice and years of meditation and so on to weed aside the reactions, especially the emotional reactions, and just rest in the fact. Not, for example, say, oh, wow, I have such a great meditation. Oh, you know that tomorrow you're going to be a slump. <laughs> but if you can say, that was a great meditation, but don't get excited about it, you'll find that it stays with you. That's why it's so important, for example, when you meditate and you find yourself emotional, try to stay away from that. Try not to get involved in the emotion because the love, the devotion, the joy will be much deeper and there won't be an opposite to it. Now, in that, we have to remember that ultimately we want to separate ourselves and it's not a quick thing. It could be a quick thing if you could really... Uh, make up your mind that you're free, but uh, not very many people can do it. Basically because they expect it to take time, it takes time. Really, that's what it's about. If you could really understand that it's right now, you wouldn't have to go through all this stuff of Kriya Yoga and meditation and Samadhi and everything. You'd just be there. But the mind can't accept that thought because it's been too conditioned. And so bit by bit, we have to improve on these things. And that means that we have to live in this world not only uh, as uh, hermits. Master made this point very clear. The Bhagavad Gita makes this point very clear. We have to live in this world to make it a better world. We have to feel that this world is, uh, as we make it better, we become better. But it's if we become too attached to these things, then it doesn't become better because the ego gets involved. Nonetheless, for example, my uh, garden at Crystal Hermitage, this was a, uh, you know, when my parents died, they left me a certain amount of money, and I thought, well, I know that Dad's soul would be miserable if I, if I gave it to Ananda. I know. <laughs> I know that I would be miserable if I kept it for myself. So let me do something for Rananda that would seem like it was for me too. So I used that money to create Crystal Hermitage. And as you know, you've been there, it's beautiful. But there, and there was also a woman who came here some years ago. And she'd had some sort of a gadget with which she measured vibrations and she'd been to all these uh, uh, sacred sites and temples in Europe and so on. And the, Highest vibration she'd found, if I recall correctly, was 28,000. And she couldn't believe it when she came to Crystal Hermitage. She said, but it's 32,000. This is incredible. 
Well, I don't know the genuineness of her experience, but anyway, it was a good thing. I <laughs> and the truth is that when you create beauty, and I'd love for you women in the community to think of this, because the women have a better eye for this kind of thing than men do. And if you could really put your minds to making Ananda beautiful, that's not delusion, except in this way. Sure, it's delusion, but you have to go in the right direction. And when you, everything that you do takes you more toward beauty, toward harmony, toward peace, it's still a part of delusion, but it's taking you out of it and taking you closer to God. And so much that we do in life cannot be anything but relative. So let it be relatively good rather than relatively bad. <laughs> this is right. And so, for example, Crystal Hermitage, the vibrations are great. You know why? Because physical beauty created with love, draws high astral entities to it. And when you just have a forest, well, how many stories are about rakshasas living in the forest? <laughs> it's the truth, isn't it? Yeah, you have a few hermits too, but an awful lot of rakshasas, it seems. I know that there is something that when you create beauty, I mean, you worry about taking down the trees, nature, God, the angels, want this place beautiful, and it won't be beautiful, it's just a jumble of falling down trees. So don't worry about that. Think about making a place that's beautiful for God. And as I said, you ladies especially um, have an eye for that, so I really count on you more than on us men. I hate to say it, but there it is. Um, uh, I've, I've always been astonished at the difference in consciousness between men and women. But you can have a man and a woman walking down a street. And uh, the woman will say, I like those shoes in that window back there. Window? The man? <laughs> the man wasn't even aware of a window at this week of shoes. That's the way we're made. We just It's a good thing. We should be grateful to each other, for each can give something to the other. But I lived in this monastery at New Kamalvi for a few months, and uh, I was so surprised and amused also. I went to the altar there and saw that the altar cloth, which you'd think would be put there with devotion and love and a sense of desire to create beauty and so on, right? Well, if it was, it didn't show. They had the stupid altar cloth upside down, inside out. I thought no convent would ever do that. But it would be good for us to create this sense of balance where we recognize and want to develop beauty in things. And uh, I think this is something women bring to life, uh, bring to our lives, and something for which to be grateful. And so, women especially, but men, at least they can cut down the big things. <laughs> you know, I have, a, I have a sense of beauty. Many of the men here have. I'm just, uh, I enjoy having my joke also. <laughs> it's not that I'm being categorical about anything like that. But I am saying, and if you can be categorically relative, that's what I'm being. But, what we do, we should do in such a way that it brings us relatively always closer to an ideal. 
I honestly believe that many of us here have lived together before, have created communities before, we've brought with us a memory of this, and that's why we're doing it in such a harmonious way. That's why there's so much joy in the process, because we've shared this, uh, this endeavor, this adventure, we've developed it, and we know a lot about how to do it, but uh, these things we need to bring into the world. If, you know, I live, as you know, I live in Italy in the hills of Umbria, and uh, one big difference there, between there and here, is that they've had centuries to tame the land. And you're not just looking at hills, you're looking at beautifully cultured hills. Everything is beautifully laid out. We haven't had the time here in California. We only became a state, I think, at the beginning of this century, or just about that. Completely different culture. Each one has its own. The beauty of California and America is that we are new, and therefore we can think in new ways at a time in history when it's necessary to think in new ways, when the old ways tend to become too habitual. Still, if you come to Italy and uh, see the fields there, you'll see what we lack here, which is that sense of, of a tamed, beautified countryside. The Chinese took it even further. They developed a whole art which um, said that if a mountain is here, it can, be, it can uh, disturb the vibrations of the land. We should take the mountain down, move it over here, put the house in this direction instead of that direction. There's a whole science around it, and there's a lot of validity in it. When you see a harmonious countryside, your heart feels filled. So whatever you do, try to do that in your home. And for God's sake, don't begin by coming to see my house this morning because I <laughs> didn't make my bed. <clears throat> but to create harmony in the home, to create harmony in everything that you do, to try to dress nicely. You know, sometimes I'll say to an absolute stranger, I must seem totally mad, but I say thank you for dressing like that. Because it's a compliment to everybody when you dress nicely. And when you people walk, see people walking around sort of sloppily, Master saw some men like that in Phoenix many years ago. And he said, why do you dress like that? He was just in tatters. And the man said, I am a renunciate. Master said, you're not a renunciate. You're attached all over again to disorder. <laughs> we don't want to be attached. We don't want to have any attachments. But we do want to create beauty without attachment. And the more we do things without attachment, the more beautiful they can become. This is a very important thing to realize that to create artistic beauty even, you don't have to be attached. Rather, your attachment will be a stumbling block. The more you can think, let him do it through me, the more you find a flow happening. and. Uh, you don't even know how it happens, but it's beautiful. Now, if we want to remember that we are children of the light, that's what we have to hang on to even while we're acting, because we're not going to just suddenly merge in the light. We have to take those steps that reach us to the light, that take us toward the light. And if we do that, then bit by bit, more and more light comes inside us. But it won't come by 
scoffing at this world and saying it's all delusion, it's not worth anything. I say that sometimes, and I must say I feel it. Nonetheless, it's one side of the story, and that's why I say, look at who's saying it. Because it's always been a part of my nature to be a hermit. But I know the truth, too. It's got to be both. And really has to be for God. We have to offer everything to God in His light. And really we have today, more than in most centuries, a war between light and darkness. Don't think that God is pleased if you just sit back and say, well, it's all delusion, I won't get involved. You must be involved. Be involved fighting for God. Be involved serving God. Say to God, what can I do to help you? What can I do to please you? What can I do to advance your light and bring your light into the world? It isn't going to happen by just letting him do it all because it's all delusion. Yes, it's delusion, but if it's delusion, why not have the right dream? If you've got a dream, why not dream beauty? Now, why dream nightmares? So we must think of creating beautiful places. Yes, just with the right spirit, that's all I'm asking. But if we could create communities like Ananda and leave aside dogmas and sectarianism and all that stuff, which Master didn't believe in, I don't believe in, I don't think you believe in. When somebody comes to your door, don't think, oh, here's a chance for a conversion. We're not into conversion, (laughs) unless it be to people's own self. If they can recognize that in their own nature there is beauty and ugliness, why not feed that beauty? Why not, therefore, create places of beauty in this country? The greatest thing that could happen would be if thousands of communities like Ananda began, and they don't have to be of Ananda. I'd say the bigger a thing gets, the worse it is. That's why I like autonomous communities. But if we can, in in, uh, this way, encourage other people to learn to live together in harmony, I have to be honest with you, probably every day, I just think, God, thank God for Ananda. Thank God for all these wonderful friends in him. Thank God for what God has given us outwardly, too, as a way of helping us to serve him more and to bring more joy to other people. All of these things are right and good, and I want to support them with all my heart. It's that I, when I see ego there, I don't want that because I know that that will create and will introduce disharmony. I had a funny experience years ago. <clears throat> somebody told me that, or told a friend, or, okay, let me put it this way. Somebody told me that a friend had told her, okay? Got <laughs> 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 to get these things right. That I must have been so-and-so in a past life, some famous writer. And, of course, it doesn't matter of a two-penny nail, it doesn't matter a thing. But nonetheless, while I didn't take it uh, seriously, I thought, well, uh, if people like the way I write, then I should at least try my best to write well. So the first thought I had when I sat down the next day to write was, I mustn't disappoint my public. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't get a single sentence right. (laughs) I took a sentence and 
sort of like bumped cars in a railway yard, moved the words this way, that way, the other way. Nothing went right. Finally, I saw what was happening. I had a good laugh at my own expense. And I said, well, God, all right, you tell me what you want. Suddenly, it was there. And substantially different from all that I had been thinking. You'll see that the more you give it to him and let him do it, and it won't have to be one way, there are a billion ways. Just as there, isn't, there are no two snowflakes alike, exactly alike. So there are so many ways of expressing God. And if you express God, that's all that really matters. He will do something through you. You know, back in the days when hippies were really in their prime, I never really had, I mean, I was too old for one thing. And it just wasn't my thing. And rock music, well, I've had a rather peculiar life. I was in a monastery from the age of 22, so I didn't really know about such things. Rock music was popular for five years before I first heard of its existence. And uh, um, I remember I said this to a cousin of mine, and she said, really, Don, you wouldn't want people to think you quaint. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, when I've heard Michael Jackson, naturally I don't like his music, how could I? <laughs> Nonetheless, I had to recognize that he was superb at what he did. His sense of rhythm was exact and sensitive, and whereas I didn't like what he was doing, I had to say I loved the way he did it because it was just right. It's his way. It isn't my way. We, don't, we can't all be everything to everybody. But as long as you can appreciate other people's ways. So I was thinking of this time back in the hippie times when I met uh, um, from the farm. What's his name? Uh, Stephen Gaskin. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen Gaskin. And uh, uh, he and I had a talk, and he was just exactly on the other side of the coin from me in almost everything. And he loved rock music. It was the real music, man. <clears throat> You know, I didn't mind it at all because he was so genuine in what he was doing. I love the man. I don't like ungenuineness. I don't like people who do things just because other people are doing them. But when they do it from inside, then I love it. I mean, I like it. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> but he was so completely into what he did. And I had to respect him for that. So we had a very nice contact, in fact. But remember, people don't have to be just like you to be genuine or to be doing things for God. That's, uh, God has so many different songs to sing. The important thing is that you not do it as an imitation of other people, that you do it because this is what you feel, that you don't write melody just because other people have written the same kind of melody. Do it, do what you feel. Somebody, some newspaper reporter or magazine reporter, I think it was, asked me a question in Italy a couple of years ago. She said, well, what's your favorite music? And I startled myself by saying, well, my own. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it isn't that I, she didn't ask me, what do you think is the best music? I couldn't have answered that. But certainly it's my favorite because it comes from my heart. It should be that way. Everything that you do should be your favorite because not because it's better than somebody else. Don't compare it to other people. But if it sings your song, 
if it dances your dance, if it expresses your thoughts, this is what you owe to the world and to God. And it may be nothing but cleaning shoes, but if you do it with devotion, you know that beautiful story uh, of Tagore's, of this beggar who, who, who saw this great golden chariot coming, and he thought, oh, my lucky day is here. And the chariot stopped outside his hut, and he thought, oh, at last, my, my fortune has arrived. And he went up to this king in this golden chariot, which was a symbol for God. And he was just about to uh, tell him all the things he would like when the king stepped down and said, what have you got to give me? And this beggar was so abashed. I mean, what, what could he have and what could he give to the king? And so he dug in his little pouch and he picked out a grain of rice and gave him that. And the king was grateful and left. That evening when he came in from begging, he poured his purse out on the floor and there was one little grain of gold. And he thought, oh Lord, if I'd only given you everything. Don't you see that whatever you give God becomes blessed, everyone. The least little thing, if you give to God, he blesses it, makes it more beautiful. And so, whereas we can't say, okay, I know now that I'm a child of the light and so on, yeah, we need to affirm that. But we also need to accept the reality, which is that we have to take one step after another to reach that light. And sometimes that means having to do a lot of work. And I've had a lot of people, devotees so-called, sneer at me because I've done so much in this life. They said, what would you have done if you had only meditated? I said, well, good luck to you, but I'm doing what my, I'm doing what my guru told me to do and what my nature to forces me to do. And I'm grateful for that opportunity that I can do it for God. And I know that through that I feel much closer to him. Whereas when I, if I were to do something different, then if Guru is displeased, all the gods can be pleased and it still would be of no value. If Guru is pleased, I mean, if Guru is displeased and all the gods are applauding, it means nothing. What you do and what the Guru tells you to do comes from inside. And if you follow that, you will find that you will be walking in those steps that take you to the inner light. Meanwhile, however, the way to do it is always with non-attachment. Not to say, my dance, my song, my play, my book. Try to stay strictly away from that thought. That takes willpower. That's why I had that first... Uh, a reading on self-control. This is the kind of self-control it takes, too. To have that control inwardly when people praise you. The ego likes that kind of thing, doesn't it? Oh, wow, you're a really good painter. The ego's pleased. You should say, no, I will not accept that thought. Not because I want to suffer. Because I want to be more than this little, tiny, imprisoned self-consciousness. So if you can really say and say it sincerely, and if you can't say it sincerely, then say it anyway, because it'll become sincere. Make it more and more your thought, God is the doer. Give to him the credit for what you do, what you do well. 
give him not the blame, but at least the the uh, agency uh, if you do wrong. That way you don't get involved, because you know so many people take very seriously the mistakes that they make. Oh, I did this terrible sin, and I know there was one man who came to me, he was the captain of a ship, and he was from Spain, and, and uh, so he uh, came to my apartment in San Francisco before I lived here, and he was talking about this great sin on his soul and how terrible he felt and he didn't know what it, I thought my god what is this what has he done has he murdered his mother has he uh, betrayed his country I just didn't know what it was but it sounded terrible the way he was describing it and finally said I, I can't say it in English I'll have to say it in Spanish he said soy homosexual I'm homosexual and I was so relieved that it was something so trivial <laughs> that I said, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> well, you know, for people who counsel others, remember this. That was the worst thing I could have said to them. I should have said, oh, my God. Oh, no. Oh, well, but you know, there are worse sins. And brought him gradually to the point where maybe he'd begin to have a little faith, but I took that leap too fast, and it was too much for him, and he just, uh, I lost him. It taught me a lesson in how to counsel. But the thing is that, that uh, if you could say, well, God is that, you'll find it a lot easier to get out of it. Just say, well, I have a habit, and I can't overcome it, but I want to. And so don't be attached to it to the extent of affirming that you are this thief, you are this... Uh, even murderer, no sin that man is capable of committing is that man. You can be the worst torturer. There's still a tortured soul inside that body, knowing that it's doing wrong, knowing that it wants to get out, not understanding how, and thinking that it finds pleasure in hurting, because that way it's not thinking about its own hurts, but those hurts come back again and again. So if you can give God... I hesitate to use the word credit, but anyway, and I hesitate to use the word blame, but make him nonetheless the agent of what you do, whatever it might be. And don't, if you make a mistake, sort of hide it like this. Well, I hope you didn't see that one. <laughs> he saw it. He was that. He's everything. So be a child of the light. Whatever your present habits are, and with detachment, bit by bit, you'll reach the point where you realize it isn't me, it's all he. Whatever I do, if it's beautiful, if it's ugly, if it's glorious, if it's painful, give it to him and you will find yourself gradually becoming freer. And so it is that sometimes great sinners have quickly found God. It says it even in the Bhagavad Gita that the greatest of sinners, if he will steadfastly meditate on me, quickly comes to me. You will find that by affirming that you're a child of the light and remembering that you aren't in your present memory, in your most recent memories, and so you want to get dig deeper. That's why meditation is so important. It takes you deeper and deeper into your consciousness where you suddenly expose that gold that is your true self. But in your attitudes, day by day, have always this thought, you are the doer, Lord, and I want to do this for you and I want you to do it through me. And my privilege is being able to serve because God created this world really for one purpose. 
to enjoy himself through many. Does he enjoy himself at Buchenwald? No. Does he enjoy himself in torturing? No. Does he enjoy wars? No. He doesn't enjoy those things, and therefore he hasn't fulfilled the purpose of his creation. But when all these people realize bit by bit that this is what we're here for, then whatever they do in this world, he wants mankind to live in godly light, and in that light to come close to him. He doesn't want to dissolve it all. He wants to show how he can enjoy himself in all these forms and see all of them as divine. Be a child of light by not being attached to anything else, even your own body, your own ego, and your own actions. Joy to you.